0: Amen. Amen. That was some awesome worship and good morning. It is great to see you guys. Um, You know, it is, I guess it's coming down to the final week of what we call the Christmas season, right? The Christmas season is, to me, characterized by by statements and and well wishes by everyone to wish you a Merry Christmas, right? We've got those statements of uh, be a jolly Christmas, a Merry Christmas, or as Clark Griswold says, a hap-happiest Christmas of all. Um, But it's the time of the year where really we want everyone to be in a good mood. We wish they're happy, and we we even come into the new year, and we say happy new year, and it's kind of one of those festive times where the motto is happiness, but if you're like me over the last month or even over this next week, you're going to find yourself at one point or another um, maybe overwhelmed, maybe frustrated, maybe anything but happy, maybe even a bit grouchy. I, I mean, we all know someone that's a grouch, but sometimes we find that person is us. I, I found that was me this last week. Um, I have one of those notorious December birthdays where my parents plan to save a little money and have me closer to Christmas so they could combine all the gifts. And so my birthday is always wrapped up in uh, Christmas. Um, but this last week was my birthday, and it was the big 40 for me. Um, I turned, yeah, 40, which... No. No. <laughs> For some of you, that's a distant memory, I know, right? I'm a young guy, and others of you, you're like me, um, you're in that, that, that stage of life where you're now looking a little longer in the mirror going, what is that? Like, we're, you know, it's that middle of life stage, and for, for the youth who are in here today, I'm like as old as dinosaur bones to you guys. Like, I, I had a kid in our youth group last week, he goes, hey, uh, do you have any grandkids yet? And I was like, what? Man, I'm 40, not like 45. Um, <laughs> But like, it's one of those ages, it's kind of difficult. Um, and for me, I, you know, I'm not into birthdays, I'm not one of those people that needs you to reserve the entire month for my birthday to celebrate me at every waking hour. Um, we know who some of you are, ladies. Um, and um, I, I'm one of those guys that I just like to get through, I, I like to get through my birthday, I don't think about it, but, but turning 40 kind of slowed me down. I kind of thought, you know, it's like, it's one of those ones that was a little harder because I definitely realized I'm not a kid anymore. I mean, I wake up in the morning, and I feel it. You know, my kids jump out of bed, and you, you might say you feel it, just wait till later on in life, but like, my kids jump out of bed, and they're ready to run a marathon, and I'm like struggling to find my slippers, to put them on, to find my glasses, like, it's, it's a struggle, you know, just getting out of bed, and, I, and, and it kind of hit me, it's like, you're not a young kid anymore. When you do things you think you used to do, you hurt yourself badly, you know, and now it's going to be really badly and permanently. Um, and, you know, it, it, as I kind of thought about it this year, starting to think, you know, hey, look, for, for the most part, you know, the hourglass is, is no longer half empty. It's half full and it's filling even more. Time is beginning to run out. I kind of got into one of those moods where I was grumpy, right? Everybody was like, hey, what do we buy you? It's your big 40th birthday. I'm like, nothing, I'm a grown adult, I can buy things for myself, you know, and so I was real grouchy to buy for, I I just, to make a point, I put, everybody wanted my Amazon wish list, so I put the most expensive things I could think of, a sauna, I put a sauna on there that was five grand, it was like, just ridiculous, because I was like, I don't need anything, and then, you know, hey, let's go to dinner, let's go out to meals, and I'm like, look, I'm looking in the mirror, I need to go on a diet, I'm not excited to go out to, really, all I wanted for my birthday was just to go to bed early and to be left alone, and, um, and I found myself in that mood. It's kind of like you, you can get there from time to time. And, and, and as I reflected on that, um, I realized kind of a bit about the nature of grumpy people. Um, you know, grumpy people, in some sense, grouchy people, are realists. They see life as it really is, right? They don't see it through the uh, eyes of hope. They see it through the eyes of reality, And at one point or another, we all kind of get caught up in that, don't we, right? Where we see things and we're like, you know what, this isn't turning out how I planned. It kind of puts me in a bad mood. You know what, the holidays are tied to some bad memories. It puts me in a bad mood. Um, I'm getting older and I don't like what I see in the mirror. It puts me in a bad mood. For whatever reason, you might find yourself over this holiday season in that grumpy, kind of grouchy mood. I bring that up this this morning because I want to take a look at a passage that... um, it points us in a new direction when you begin to find yourself in those kinds of moods. It's, a, uh, it's an important passage. It's an important um, miracle in the life of Jesus. As a matter of fact, it's his very first miracle. So if you have your Bibles, open up with me to John chapter 2 this morning. John chapter two. I love the Gospel of John. It is one of my favorites in the entire Bible. John, an eyewitness to Jesus and his work and ministry here on Earth. He was one of the early disciples of Jesus. Um, as an eyewitness, he begins to recount different things from the life of Jesus. And John is kind of, you know, John's, John's out there. He gives us some of the, the more um, heavenly perspectives on Jesus, if you would. In chapter one, he starts out the chapter by telling us how he's the Word made flesh right he's he's the incarnate word of god uh, dwelling amongst us and he begins to go on in chapter 1 and he begins to show how he's beginning his ministry he starts calling different disciples and he's he's gotten at the as chapter 1 ends he's gotten about five or six different guys that are now following him he's got peter he's got andrew he's got john um, he's got a, he's got this group of guys And as chapter 2 starts, he's going to show kind of his first, I guess you could say, public revelation of really his glory and his power. So it's an important passage and an important uh, miracle in the life of Jesus. So let me read, let me start with the first few verses here. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 2. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So John kind of sets the scene here in the first two verses. He says, look, it's the third day, continuing on from the activities over the last few days. He had been calling different disciples to himself. And now on the third day, he gets an invitation to a wedding. Um, Jesus decides to bring his disciples with him. um, And the wedding's over in Cana of Galilee, about 10 miles away from where Jesus was in Nazareth. So a short little trip to this wedding. Weddings were incredibly, incredibly important events in this ancient world. In the ancient Near East, weddings were, um, at least in this Jewish context, I would say a bit bigger than some of the weddings in our culture and society. Not in the scale and the scope and the grandeur of them, but in the importance of the everyday people's lives. Weddings, you kind of gotta put yourself as you as you begin to hear this, you gotta put yourself in the shoes of the people in this first century. Life was difficult. Life was hard. Things were not easy. Every single day you worked from sunrise to sunset, save one day a week that you got off the Sabbath, and then you were back at it. They didn't have a two-day weekend like us. They didn't have three-day holidays like we do sometimes. They didn't have, you know, amount of sick days. It was like every single day they worked and worked just to put the food on the table for that day. So typically, a typical household, if you didn't work that day or two, you wouldn't eat for a day or two. And that's how it was. It was a tough, difficult life in that ancient world. You're always on guard for someone trying to take over your country. There's always something hard going on, and there's famines and droughts, and all these things were affecting them in the ancient world. And then along came a wedding, right? In a world where you didn't have vacations, in a world where you didn't travel much, along comes a wedding, and man, everything would shut down. Weddings were huge, huge events, and they're a bit different from our events or our weddings in our world. Their wedding started out, they would have kind of an appointed date that the wedding would happen on, but they didn't have an exact time. It wouldn't say, hey, join me for Justin's wedding at 7 o'clock p.m. It would be at an hour to be disclosed, so everyone would gather together that day. They would be ready, and what would happen is the groom would go out at, a, at whatever hour he chose, typically in the evening. He'd gather all his buddies, all his guys, you can call them groomsmen if you want, he'd gather all his friends, and he would go down to his bride's house where she would be waiting. She didn't know when he was coming, so she had her bridesmaids kind of watching out to alert her, but she would be ready and waiting. And the grooms would come down and they would grab their brides, it was kind of like a kidnapping You know, well, there's no good wedding except one that involves a shotgun and a a kidnapping, right? And it's like, this is kind of the ancient world. He would grab his bride. It wasn't a kidnapping, but he would grab her. They'd be ready. Her bridal, you know, maids would come with her and their family. And he would bring her back to either his house or his father's house where the ceremony was prepared. They would gather there. They would have a meal together first. Usually, typically, we'd call it the wedding feast. They'd sit down and eat. Then they would sign the marriage contract. They'd go consummate their, their, their union in the bride's groom's chambers. And then for the next, at least, minimum of seven days, if not longer, they would party. <laughs> And I mean party, they, they would celebrate, they would dance, they would sing, they would give gifts, and life would shut down for these people for an entire week. But the bride and the groom, it was their job to provide for everyone, to provide meals since they weren't out working, to provide a, a place to stay if they needed a place to stay. Family would come to town, and their extended family, but not just their family, they would invite the local community as well because they were a very community-driven community or group of people. And so you would have this giant celebration where now this bride and groom were shown off. They would take care of everyone as their families kind of took care of everyone. They would take care of everyone, and they would be presented before everyone, and they would spend an entire week celebrating them, honoring them, dancing, singing. They would give gifts between the families. It was like this great, great union and merger. And so in this ancient world, all of a sudden you got a pause in life. You got to slow down, stop worrying about work, stop worrying about all the problems around you, and you just let go for a week. You had a great time with each other. You saw family, you saw your community, and life paused. And so as this wedding kind of comes on the scene, Jesus is invited, he grabs his disciples, and he heads on down to the wedding. Verse 3 kind of continues on as he goes here. Sorry, let me catch up in my notes. Verse 3 says, And when they ran out of wine the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Right, so John continues on and he goes, look, Jesus heads to the party. And as he gets there, spends a day or two there, we don't know how long. But all of a sudden his mom comes to him and goes, look, we are out of wine. Now, some of you, when you hear this, you're like, no big deal. You know, I had a dry wedding, so could they, you know, it's not, a, it's not an issue, but you kind of have to step out and go, you know, actually, this was a really, really big deal in the ancient world. In their culture, in their society, wine was, it was an everyday thing, yes, but in the, in the context of celebration, it was, it was kind of the main symbol of joy, of happiness, of cohesion between the families, you see, wine for them, I, I, like I said, it's commonplace. They would have wine at different meals. And, uh, but it wasn't like wine in our world, right? In our, in our world, it's commonplace too. But you've got, like, you've got almost the extreme of alcohol and liquor where there's liquor stores everywhere. Any store you go into, there's tons of alcohol available to you. You have a lot of damage done by alcohol. In the ancient world, like, look, they weren't driving around cars. You know, There weren't these camel accidents or anything like that. It wasn't as dangerous as it was in our world. And on top of that... They didn't have the free-floating cash. Like I said, they worked almost every day for, for the money they needed for that day. They didn't have all this free-floating cash to just have tons of alcohol on hand so that they could have a glass of wine whenever they want. They're actually really strategic about it. They would use it to temper their water, to help purify it sometimes, because in the ancient world, they didn't have water purification systems like, like we do. They didn't have the Brita filter system in their house. You know, They would have to sometimes, with their sketchy water that's been sitting there for weeks, You know, add some wine to, to help purify it and cleanse it. They would use it for medicinal purposes. They would use it because it traveled well and didn't spoil as they were going on long journeys, you know. And so it was, it, was, it was something that they didn't have an abundance of on the daily, but they definitely had it around. But when you had a ceremony, when you had a big event, when you had a feast of the Old Testament, wine was there. Because now it was a moment to celebrate. Now it was a moment where, where look, we're, we're, we're letting loose for the week, if you would. And so the mood of the entire party is now about to change. As as Mary comes to Jesus and tells him this, she's saying, look, there are going to be some really grumpy people here. There is going to be a really embarrassed bride and groom who are supposed to be honored and respected, but all of a sudden now they didn't take care of this this small detail that now the entire week of hanging out together is going to be dramatically different than it was before for them. There's going to be some shamed and embarrassed families And seeing all this this social craziness that's about to happen, Jesus' mom calls him over and she's like, psh, son, look, this party is about to die. You need to do something. They have no wine. Right now moms have this amazing ability of saying a lot without saying a lot right (laughs) and I can only imagine the look she gave Jesus as she said this to him right you've probably gotten that look from your mom before right are you really going to wear that to dinner you know it's like moms have a great way of just saying just a little but you know there's a whole paragraph involved in that sentence and this is kind of the look she was giving Jesus I'm sure she's looking at him going look you're not going to let this party die right not the party that I invited you to, on top of that, who brought the six college-age guys that probably drank up half the wine here, right? You know, <laughs> Jesus, come on, get this thing going here, right? And she's looking at him, and it's like, in some sense, she knew. And Jesus responds to her, this is an interesting interaction, because there's a lot to it. She looks at, he looks at her, and he says, woman. Now, when he says that, don't, you know, don't think he's going like, you know, Go, woman, go make me a sandwich. It's not in that context, right? It's, it's a different type of woman. It's, if you want the literal translation, it's kind of like our Southerners would say, ma'am. You know, it's like that, that type of respect, just a, just a simple kind of form of respect, ma'am, which automatically, though, should kind of put you on your toes. Right? Why is he talking to his mom like that? You know, like, I, I get it. You respond, sometimes if you're, you're in a strict family, you're like, always refer to your mom as ma'am and sir. You know, I get it. That's cool. But, but Jesus, he's talking to his mom, and he's like, in front of everyone, he goes, ma'am you know, what is that to you or to me, right? My hour has not yet come. What Jesus is saying is like, look, I'm not a party magician here. (laughs) I'm not here to do magic tricks at parties. I'm not here to make sure everybody just has the greatest time of their life. I'm not here to to blow up bounce houses. I'm not here to to hire clowns. I'm not here to do party tricks for people. That's not why I'm here. He says, my hour has not yet come. Now, John picks this theme up. If you're a big Bible student, you can mark this down. John picks this thing up, theme up dozens of times. Jesus, and, and, and this is pretty much in John's gospel exclusively, Jesus constantly refers to his final aspect of ministry, the culmination of his ministry on earth as his hour, his death and resurrection, ultimately his glorification. And what Jesus is doing as he's talking to Mary here is he says, look, I'm slowing this down, and I want you to understand... My cause is bigger than this party. And he says, what does your concern have to do with me? Right? Or, or his words literally in the, in the Greek are, what is that to me or to you? This problem, this issue, what is that to us? You see, he's not rebuking his mom. He's not saying, hey, shh. Mom, not in front of my friends. You know, like, he's not, he's not going off on her like that. He's not, he's not resisting. He's saying, he's saying, in reality, look, how big of a deal is this? You pointed out something. It's not something that can't be fixed. Right? As he looks back and he sees everyone stressed, everyone worried, his mother especially, uh, what's about to take place and how embarrassed the bride and the groom are to be, He says, look, I have a bigger purpose than this. So how big of a deal is this? She gets what he's saying, right? So she doesn't need clarification. She doesn't talk to him anymore. She gets immediately what he's saying and implying to her that this isn't the biggest deal. Don't worry. So she turns to the servants and she goes, whatever he tells you to do, go do it. Right? She knew he was going to do something, not because she demanded it, not because he was pressured into it, but she knew who Jesus was. At the core of it. And so the story kind of continues on as Jesus now acts. Verse 6. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, And did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, beginning of signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they did not stay there many days. What a change in the scene all of a sudden, right? It's looking real bad. It's looking real down. And Jesus looks around and he sees those stone water pots. Now, 20 to 30 gallons would make these things pretty dang big. Pretty huge stone water pots. And they were set there according to the purification of the Jews. What that means is the Jews had a certain way of purifying things or they wanted everything to be clean and according to the law. And they were afraid that certain things, such as the washing of their hands or the instruments that they were serving meals on, certain things would become unclean somehow throughout the process of the day or in how they were handled. So they had this special water that was set aside that would be taken out and it would be used for you know, cleansing your hands or cleansing the dishes that you served on. And so he sees these water pots and he sees how much potential that they have as far as capacity to hold stuff, upwards of 180 gallons if they're at the bigger end. 120 to 180 gallons and he looks at the servants and he goes hey you mind doing me a favor go fill them all up with water now it seems like nothing like this would be a five-minute job but again 130 to or 120 to 180 gallons of water that is a big big task that he's asking these people to take care of and I kind of pause here because this is an interesting thing about Jesus when it comes to miracles and I love this this is so so applicatory to sometimes things going on in our lives Sometimes we just expect God to just snap. Now, Jesus could have snapped his fingers and filled them with water. That's just as easy as turning water into wine, right? But instead, he chose to have people go and to fill those up, right? He, he did that with the disciples, too, in the feeding of the 5,000. Hey, put people into groups and, and organize them and bring me some fish and some bread, you know, and, and hey, to the blind guy who he healed with the mud in his eye, he goes, hey, go wash off, make your blind self, find your way to water and go wash off your eyes. It's like Jesus loves Jesus loves when we participate with him. And at the end of the day, his miracles often have this element where we're called to obey his word, what he tells us to do. As Mary said, whatever he tells you to do, go do it. I know sometimes it doesn't make sense. I know sometimes it seems wacky. I know sometimes this picture is not all adding up, but just follow his word. And you're going to find that he does amazing things along the way. and as these servants go out and they fill these water jugs, I don't know at what point the water was turned into wine. You know, commentators, because they get a little legalistic, struggle with this. I went through tons of commentaries and every single one of them was like, of course Jesus didn't make 180 gallons of wine. That would be ludicrous. He would never want that much wine. We don't know. He might have been, the water might have been turned to wine as they drew it out. The water might have been turned to wine as he sat there and, and, and looked at it and turned it into wine. We don't know. But at the end of the day, we know that Jesus turned all that water into enough wine for an entire party filled with a community of people and family and six college-age guys that had followed him there to last the, the rest of the party. So it was a lot of wine. And he says, go, go draw the wine out. And so they draw the wine out and they, he says, go take it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast, um, he's not a glorified party planner or wedding planner, you know. Uh, The master of the feast was kind of like, uh, it was like the groom's right hand man. He was someone esteemed and honored. He was someone the family looked well upon. And this master of the feast had this job of of kind of presiding over everything, saying the prayers, being the important one. At one time in the Roman culture, they called it the captain of the feast. Um, But the master of the feast, they bring this glass of wine to him. And they hand this glass of wine to him, and he drinks it. And he just, like, you can picture the scene there as you're watching. He just pauses, and he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You see, normally people are pretty cheap, right? They're like you and they're like me, right? Normally people are cheap. They're going to put the good wine up front the first day, but then when you've had a little bit of wine and you're a little tipsy, then they're going to switch it out with the watered-down cheap stuff, you know, the boxed wine from, you know, wherever. Like, you know, they're going to put out the crummy stuff, okay? But this guy tastes this wine and he goes, whoa, you've done the total opposite. Man, you saved the best for last, it must be awkward being that groom as you're sitting there going, yeah, uh, of course I did, you know? Uh, so I always planned like that. You know, like, I, clearly he was comfortable taking the prey. He had no idea what was going on. And he goes, yeah, I mean, it's the good wine. He's like looking, looking around going, well, I guess it is. You know, and, 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 and in that moment, as they begin to have that new wine in the party, the feast carries on. The groom, who was destined to be embarrassed, to be ashamed is now honored, respected. Something he didn't quite deserve, but something nonetheless that as this part, as we see this scene kind of unfold, um, ends up happening. And John looks at it in verse 11 and he goes, look, this was the beginning of miracles in Cana of Galilee. This is where Jesus began to reveal his glory. This is where his disciples began to believe in him. This moment here, And that kind of throws me for a loop for a moment, right? You mean Jesus, right? This is where we get to see God incarnate, begin to move and act and live amongst his creation. This is how he chose to begin to reveal himself to the world. That's kind of a hard, I struggle with that, right? I I mean, naturally I would think if God's going to come on earth, if I'm God and I'm coming down to earth and I'm going to begin to reveal myself, aren't you going to go to like the temple, are you going to go to the, like a synagogue or a church like this where everybody's here to hear from you and everybody's here to see you work? It's not to say that he doesn't, but man, he shows up at a party. He makes wine, right? Don't you think you would be going to people that, that are ready for you? that are looking for the Messiah. Isn't the place you choose to make your first impact somewhere that everyone's going to be on their best behavior? But as I think about that, it's kind of what makes me so drawn to Jesus, relate to him so much. Because right, Jesus found in this party, this celebration, the perfect scene to reveal his glory. Right, he found something that actually all of us can relate to. Not just the good ones of us. Every single one of us. And that's where he chose to reveal himself. As strange as it might seem, as you kind of scale back, it's actually the perfect scene. Right? It's actually the perfect way to display his power and glory. In the end, it's a, it's a great picture to all of us of what Jesus really came to do who he really was. Look, here's the picture. There's a bunch of people, and this party is about to run dry. This party is about to be over. This party is about to get real lame real quick. Things are going to go south. But at the end of the day, as much as they prepared, as much as they tried, as much as they were celebrating, it wasn't enough. Something was running out. Life, joy was going to end for them. And there, Jesus had a choice. I love that. He didn't have to do what he had to do. He didn't make the mistakes. He could have chosen to say, you know what? It's your fault. Bride and groom, mom, I'm not doing anything. It's not my job to fix this party. These guys didn't plan right. I know these families are going to be dishonored. I know people are going to walk away grouchy and, and disappointed. But it wasn't my fault. But he looked at this scene he looked at the potential and he said, you know what? I choose to bring celebration. I choose to give them something they don't deserve. I choose to give honor where it's not due. And I choose to elevate this when it probably shouldn't go that way. And in some sense, I I found this a perfect way, a perfect glimpse of Jesus' ultimate purpose. When he says, look, my hour is not yet come, he's saying, look, I've got a greater day coming. And just like those, those stone purification jars sitting there, right? The religiosity of their day couldn't save people and it can't save us today. The purification they could do. What does it matter if your hands are purified if the party's over and done? What if it matter if the dishes you eat out of from those purified stone jars, if the dishes you, you eat out of are, are clean and, and holy according to the law, if if, man, nobody wants to eat a meal with you because they're, they're upset, they're grouchy, they're grumpy, what does it matter if everyone's gathered together, if this bride and this groom are dishonored? If everyone there is embarrassed or ashamed for these people, this is where we get a glimpse of Jesus, right? Because ultimately, we see in the bigger picture, as he refers to his hour, that Jesus replaces that old system, that old water, with new wine, right? Right? The traditions and the law and religiosity were never going to bring life to us where it had run out. But Jesus ultimately can. Jesus is the only thing that can fill what in this life is going to be destroyed and worn down by sin. Paul would pick up on this over in Romans chapter 8. I love it. Paul says in Romans 8.3, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, Christ did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, right? In some ways, this bigger picture here is is a reminder that, man, for all of us, sin is running down the clock on all of us. Death is in the future for every single one of us. No matter if you're the, the partier in the front who doesn't realize it or if you're the servant in the back who's, who's going, oh no, what's going to happen? This party is going to go real south real soon. All of us should come to, at one point or another, realize our necessity for the gospel because this life runs dry. At the end of the day, man, what Jesus offers and what the gospel offers and what he's going to go on and do when he says my hour is coming is to give his life for ours that we would have everlasting life. But as many parties that we go to and die, that wouldn't be the end of us. That when we face death on that final day, we would know, hey, because of what Jesus has given, I've got life in abundance. If anything, he saved the best for last. It's good wine from here on out. And so as I look at this story, man, it's a glorious picture for, first of all, of what the gospel ultimately will look like in our lives. But secondly, and this is kind of more of a practical thing for me. As I kind of thought about this this week as I turned 40, you know, there's also something that's important in this story for all of us to get down. It's a picture that sometimes we lose of God, right? And I know in the midst of that picture of him giving his life and dying, there's another important picture, another important aspect of God's nature that, that we can't overlook, right? When, it, when you see the, the celebration happen here, you have to understand that Jesus was right there in the midst of that. And not just that, but he chose to help it go on even more and even better, right? There's some kind of stigma, and I get it, and, and the church has probably put it out there in some part. There's some kind of stigma or, or idea about God that he's this divine, like, party pooper, Right, like as, as Billy Joel once said, and I know I, I quote this all the time, but um, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints because that doesn't sound like fun. Only the good die young, right? It's kind of that, that idea that people have of like, well, one day people are going to be down here having a great time and you'll be up in heaven sitting on a cloud just going, oh, man, I remember I used to have fun on earth, you know, and it couldn't be the opposite. Couldn't be more the opposite. Jesus, we see in this story, man, Jesus was into celebration, He was into joy. He was into the collection of people getting together over a good cause and being together and having a great time. It shows us that God is into the highs of our lives just as much as he's there for us in the lows. In our areas of joy and cheer, right there in the midst of that, God is with us and he's cheering us on. And he wants nothing but to make them all the better. I mean, we kind of lose that. People can kind of lose that in that cold, hard study of God, right? I get it. We all want to know God. But but this is an important aspect of God that we have to understand and get into our heads. God is into celebration. He's always been. Now, when I say that, let me be clear, okay? Because the story involves alcohol, and and I get it. You can easily go over the line and be like, God's into celebration. I better go home and get drunk. You know, this is what this story is teaching. It's not what this story is teaching. It's not what the Bible teaches at all. Look, it teaches moderation in all things. Okay, and if you're in here and you're someone that's like, that's struggled with alcohol or know that you have those tendencies, look, I wouldn't at all, and Jesus wouldn't at all tell you, go home and get drunk, have fun, you know. It, it's, being drunk is never anything that the Bible promotes or encourages or says you should do, right? Paul says this over in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, don't be drunk with wine wherein there's excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Look, there's something even better than alcohol out there. And it's the Holy Spirit. And he goes, look. Understand this, if you can handle it in moderation, enjoy celebrating that way, but there are a trillion other ways you can celebrate if that's something you struggle with. Don't think that that's just what this is teaching. He's not teaching us all to be college students at a kegger, you know, and and going and partying with our friends, right? That's not what he, and he didn't turn all that wine, or water into wine, so that everyone would be walking around drunk, you know, embarrassing their kids, throwing up, you know. Uh, That's not the intent here. But the intent was, That people would see something that brought them joy. That they would connect with each other. Wine was the symbol of joy for them. And it's amazing if you take a moment to think of this, how into our our joy and our celebration that God really is. Right? You see, when we celebrate, a few things are going on that are really important for us. Right? When you celebrate an event, you remember something important. Right? Whether you like it or not, when you celebrate your birthday, you're remembering, hey, I was born this day, I'm getting older, you know, time goes by, blah, blah, past memories, all that kind of stuff, and it's important. When you celebrate Christmas, you remember the birth of Jesus. When you celebrate Thanksgiving, you're, you're remembering what happened in the, and, and to be thankful for things. You know, taking that moment to, to remember something, well, it creates gratitude, creates hope. It creates a memory that will continue on, and, and that's important. But also, when you celebrate you make room to connect with others, right? To express joy amongst others is is one of the greatest connectors we have. And God is really into our connection with each other. And we just did a big nine-part series on the fruits of the Spirit, and most of that was into how we connect with other people because that is so important to God. And God looks at us and he goes, look, I want you connecting with other people, and I want you expressing joy, Right in the Bible, they had these feasts and they had all kinds of celebrations, not just by people by themselves, but that they would get together with others, family, friends, community, and they would celebrate God. And people who learn to celebrate, they're people who can connect with others really well. I mean, I've got this friend, and he's, he's one of my favorite persons to go, to go places with. Um, you know, I've been on surf trips with him, and we've had the greatest time, but I love going to, to, to baseball games with him. Because he's a crazy Dodgers fan. And so uh, a few months ago, um, when the Dodgers were still good before the, the, the postseason, um, we had a, a ticket to one of their last games. And, and it was a come from behind win game. And so I brought a, a few of my friends. But, but this friend, that, this particular friend, um, he's one of those guys that like anytime anything happens, he overreacts. And then he celebrates, and he cheers, and he shouts, and he yells at the other team. And, like, you've all probably met someone like that. And they are a lot of fun to be in, at least when your team's winning, you know, because they're usually depressed when your team's losing. They take it that hard the other way. But... um we're sitting there in this game, and, 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 and me and my friends are sitting in this row, and this guy's standing up, and anything that happened, he's yelling. And I noticed by the end of the game, he knew, like, everyone in the row below us, everyone in the row behind us. He was, like, high-fiving people all around him each time it happened. And, and I'm kind of one of those quiet, like, oh, yay, you know, golf clappers when good things happen. And i like, I, being around him, I learned. I'm like, man, it is so much more fun to just celebrate Even if it's over dumb things, because, man, it connects me with people. It helps me to express joy. It reminds me that there's a good side of life that I can enjoy. And and being around people like that, you all know, you feel more connected. You feel a little bit closer to people like that. Rather than the guy who's over there with his arms crossed, just going, oh, that's good. You know, like, like you could do better. You know, and it's like, there's some sense where God looks at us and he goes, I'm into that. I'm into you spilling nachos on your friend and, and, and having a great time. I'm into you having a celebration together where, where you're just connecting with other people. I mean, so much so that in the Old Testament, he had these things, uh, they, had, they had feasts issued and, and they were to meet together, together at different times and they were to gather together as Old Testament people of God to celebrate different events that had happened. And God instituted a number of different, actually about seven different feasts that they were to gather for. But the funny thing is, is every time he refers to them in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, it's literally, my feasts. God calls the feast that they were to gather together and party and celebrate for, my feast. I love that. That God looked at those interactions amongst people, and he goes, these are my events. He labeled them as his. Not because he was so selfish that, it, that they were his only. It was like, no, I'm connected with this. This is what I'm into. When you guys celebrate, you're celebrating something that I'm involved in. He had festivals, the festival of booths where people would camp out at night. They would look up at the stars and they would remember where they had been in the wilderness. And they would spend an entire week outside camping and looking up at the stars. It's like God was into them connecting. God was into them pausing and remembering. They would stop and they would celebrate together. And I'm discovering lately as I look at Jesus, especially this week, this chapter or this uh, story here, that I don't always value celebration the way Jesus did. Right? Jesus was always at weddings. or He was having dinner at different people's house. He was, he was celebrating the holidays and the holy days. He was there present in Jerusalem for all of them. Even in one chapter, we find in John chapter 10, that he had celebrated a book that wasn't a biblical holiday. It was the feast of uh, dedication or what we would call Hanukkah. Right? There's no doubt about it that Jesus was into connecting with people celebrating, and being in the midst of people. But he was also serious. There was that side of him. But he recognized, I need regular breaks. People need regular breaks to pause, to remember, to celebrate together. And you can't have an accurate view of Jesus unless you understand that he really likes to celebrate as well. I've kind of wondered sometimes, you know, as I look at Christmas, you know, whether it's on TV, or you look at all the, you go to the store, and you see all the craziness there, right? Is, is God really into Christmas? Right I know we're supposed to be celebrating Jesus and his incarnate birth into our our midst here, and I know that's supposed to be but but often that gets missed right amongst the christmas trees and the and the the Christmas lights and the gluttonous meal we all have together and um Hollywood's jumble of all the christmas movies and 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 it's like you know and then you you throw in Santa on top of that right and it's like Is God really into this? You know, this jolly guy taking credit for all the gifts, you know, and um, is, is that something that God really values? Look, as I look at this story, I realize this. It's not that Jesus is into Santa Claus, okay, but Jesus is into us connecting with one another. Jesus is into us pausing, celebrating with each other, letting go of some of our worries and our troubles, and focusing on, something other than ourselves he would say look i see you guys and we have we have our fall festival out there and i know there's some people who get kind of like <gasps> it's halloween you know we don't call it that but it's really a halloween festival and i know halloween's of the devil and we've you know all the legalists have taught us that and it's like look god doesn't look out there and see you in your tacky spider-man outfit and see a bunch of grown-up adults dressing up like their kids and god doesn't look at it and shake his head and go oh man Man, don't they know what I've done for them? Don't they take life seriously? God looks at it and he goes, look, you hear those kids running around yelling and screaming and having a great time? Do you see the adults who actually let go of being embarrassed about themselves and even dressed up themselves too? Do you see the, the, the people that are serving? Do you see the people that are connecting? I'm into that. That makes me smile. I've always been into that. And so yeah, sometimes along the way, Things don't always turn out perfect. They, don't, they never have. The symbols have never been quite right and quite perfect. But God looks at that and he goes, you know what? More so than that, as Jesus was here at this, this wedding, he shows us, I'm into people being together. Look, I could shut this whole thing down and be like, look, wine is dangerous, Look, people shouldn't be partying. It's a really serious world out there. Look, there's a lot of political stuff going on in Rome. We shouldn't be taking a moment here to party. And, you know, look, look who's in charge and blah, blah, blah. He could have easily shut things down and been like, I'm not into that right now. But instead, he made a choice. I'm here to see people be happy. I'm here to bring joy in life. And for all of us, we have that same choice. It's important that we take that choice and we, we reflect what God has done for us in our lives. It was, like I told you, I turned 40 this week and it reminded me of something that happened a few years ago. Um, about 10 years ago, Pastor Dave asked me if I would do announcements. He's like, I want you to get comfortable in front of people. And I'm like, I'm still not comfortable in front of people. I get really nervous up here. It's just, it's just the way I am. But... Yeah, I was ten times worse back then. I would come up here and I would. You ever spoken in front of someone and had the diaphragm lock up and you're like, and I would grab the. We had the clear pulpit, so it was even worse. You could see me shake at that time, and I'd grab the pulpit and I would, and I would give you announcements like, coming up is the Christmas celebration, and you know. So I was like locked up, and and I was really bad. And so one Sunday I was like, oh, I got. I I was announcing season classics, our our seniors ministry event, and I was like, oh, I got a good joke for once. I could tell a joke, so I went up there all casual, you know, and I'm like, I'm like, and, and it wasn't a good. Good joke. It was stupid. Um, I was probably 30 at the time. It was about 10 years ago. So, thread right around 30, and I go, "Hey, coming up is our season classics event. You know, um, season classics is for older people. If you want to know if you fit into this range, you know, you probably want to be someone who's got nothing left in life to live for. You know, um, <laughs> someone like 40 or older. You know, and I thought that was funny because I was 30. Which now I'm 40. It's not funny at all. Um, and uh, I thought it was funny, and someone in the front row thought it was funny. This one guy, Michael Rodriguez, he goes, Ah, shut up, Justin. And he was laughing. And so this side of the room was laughing. But then on this side of the room, it got real serious. This lady stood up and she looked at me. She crossed her arms, put up her head, turned, and walked out of the room and literally left church. I saw her walk through there and walk out to the parking lot. I was like, Oh my gosh. You're going to leave over that bad joke? Wait till you hear Pastor Dave, you know? Like, there's some, <laughs> if that's what's going to send you away, you're not going to make it here very long. And, and so I was like, in my head, I'm like, I'm up here like shaking, nervous, and, and she left church. And of course I felt horrible, but I was like, that's kind of, you know, as I turned 40, I realized that's kind of what happens in life if we can't learn to celebrate. We can't learn to celebrate getting older. We can't learn to celebrate that you're one year closer to being with Jesus, you know? We can't learn to celebrate that, look, Look, hey, there's a. I, I know all the symbols aren't right at Christmas. I know everything's not perfect. I know everything might not go the way you want it to go. But, but man, there's a reason to celebrate. There is a reason to pause and remember. There's a reason to, to shut things down and stop worrying about the normalcy of life and to say, you know what, for this moment, I'm going to be here. Whether I like these people or not, and I'm going to celebrate. And I'm going to enjoy myself. I did that this week. I was thinking about this, and I was like, finally, I, was, I relented. I'm like, okay, fine, I'll go to meals. You know, I was like, I didn't want to go out. I just wanted to go to bed early. But it was like, uh, my family wanted to go out. And we went out to an amazing meal together. And it was a lot of fun. And then one of my buddies called, and he's like, hey, you're going to dinner with us tonight. It's my birthday, too. And uh, you and your wife, were all going out to dinner. And he, he treated us as this amazing meal. And I was like, hey, I wanted to go to bed early, but I'm going to go out on my birthday. And, and I had a wonderful, awesome, amazing time. And it's like, learning to celebrate does that. Begins to change your perspective outside of that moment, outside of that event. Beginning to celebrate and let go does that for each and every one of us. And I know things might be difficult. I know things might be hard. I I know you might look at things and you might be like, you know what, I don't have a lot to celebrate. I have a lot of bad memories. I'm quite a realist. I understand what's really going on in this world. I don't like these people. I don't want to be here. But look, there's something great you'll always have to celebrate. And that's what the story ultimately at the end of the day teaches us, that Jesus came to give his life for you and for me, that we would never, ever experience the end of our life. We'd continue to go on forever with the everlasting life that he gives us, as he says over in John chapter four. He goes, look, I came to give you life and that in abundance. If you learn to celebrate anything, pause for a moment when everyone else is slowing down for the holidays and go, you know what? Jesus has given me life, everlasting life, and I know he's never going to leave me, never going to fail me. And you'll have one of the greatest reasons to ever celebrate. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much that while you're serious, deadly serious about our sin, about our well-being, about our lives, your seriousness also involves your joy for us and your Desire for us to celebrate, to connect with each other, to be people that focus on the good in life and not the bad. So help us as we, as we face this remaining week of Christmas and the new year and all that's coming ahead, help us to be people that learn to celebrate, that aren't stingy, that aren't grumpy, that aren't too much of a realist, but can we learn to take moments where we just let go. We focus on you. Knowing that all the while, Lord, you've given your life for us, You've died that we might have everlasting life. So help us to celebrate that above all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.